Chapter 14 of The Romance of Modern Electricity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Romance of Modern Electricity by Charles R. Gibson. Chapter 14 Electricity and Speech. What speech is really? How electricity produces sound. Useful invention by a clergyman. How telephone exchanges are worked some amusing ideas, central battery system, clever signaling apparatus, the howler, who keeps a note of subscribers' calls. Some people are content to go through life without ever stopping to think how it is that we can produce speech. The whole subject of sound, which branch of science is called acoustics, is a most interesting one to everyone who cares to study it. It is known to all that when a body produces or emits a sound, such a body must be in vibration in order to disturb the surrounding air and set up similar vibrations in it, which in turn strike upon the drums of our ears and cause certain sensations to be conveyed by our auditory nerves to the sensorium. The setting up of such air vibrations is very apparent in the beating of the big drum, the clapping of cymbals, the striking of a piano key, the bowing of a violin string, and so forth. Again, we have the vibrating reeds in many wind instruments, and in others, such as flutes and trumpets, we have a column of air in vibration. The air, being matter in a gaseous state, is made up of tiny little particles or molecules, and it is each of these molecules of gas, far beyond even microscopial vision, which vibrates to and fro. As each little molecule has, as it were, to nudge his neighbor into motion, it is natural that the energy thus transmitted soon dissipates itself, so that the molecules at a distance do not receive any appreciable disturbance unless the sounding body is in very violent vibration, and even then the sound soon dies away in the air as the distance increases. As a matter of fact, the air does not conduct vibrations, sound, nearly so well as a liquid, which has much greater elasticity. And on the same principle, a solid is a better conductor of sound than a liquid. The string telephone, which, although merely a child's plaything, is yet of much scientific interest, is a good illustration of a solid body, the string, conducting sound better than the surrounding air. Early in the last century, a London professor gave a very good illustration of this property of solids to an audience in the Polytechnic Institution in London. A band of musicians were placed in a room in the basement of the building, and from this room long solid metal rods were carried right up through the principal hall and into a room on the upper floor, where they were attached to ordinary sounding boards, a number of rods and boards being used simply to increase the effect. When the musicians played in the basement, the audience in the upper room heard the music as clearly as if it were being performed there, but in the principal hall, through which the rods passed, no sound was heard. This illustration enables one to realize what a good conductor of sound a metal rod is, but it is quite evident that these vibrations, when handed on from one to another of myriads of molecules, will soon dissipate as the length of the rod is greatly increased and, in addition, there will be a certain amount of damping, or lessening, of these vibrations at each point where the rod is supported. It was really in connection with this set of rods and boards just described that the word telephone was first invented, in order to express the idea of carrying sound. 
Greek, phone, to a distance, Greek, tele. It is quite possible to have a speaking telephone of this nature over a limited distance. In such a telephone, we have a metal disc against which one person speaks, while the distant listener stands opposite a similar disc, the two metal plates or discs being connected by a tightly stretched wire. It is marvelous that a flat metal disc, receiving vibrations conveyed by the wire from the distant disc, can set up exactly the same vibrations in the air as the speaker's voice does at the other end. It is, indeed, an extraordinary feat on the part of a piece of flat metal to reproduce all the variety of air vibrations for the production of which we require the complex machinery of lungs, vocal cords, mouth, teeth, tongue, lips, and nose. It is evident that if the proper vibratory motion can be given to a metal disc by any means, the disc will speak. The required vibrations are far too complex to be imitated by any purely mechanical arrangement, although an American some twenty years ago did construct a speaking machine by closely imitating the arrangement of our human organs of speech. While the machinery was most ingenious and was controlled by a keyboard similar to that of a piano, but used for the opening and closing of valves, etc., and while the results were most remarkable, yet many words were very indistinct, and all the sounds were too uniform and drawling. The only way in which we can give a metal disc the proper vibrations is by either directly speaking in front of it, or by communicating to it these vibrations already given to another disc. In the phonograph, we speak against a very thin glass disc or diaphragm, which, by means of an attached cutter, makes little indentations on a rotating cylinder of specially prepared wax. The disc may again be made to reproduce the speech by rotating the cylinder and allowing the point of a connecting lever to bob up and down, as it were, in the indents, and thus set the attached disc once more vibrating, exactly as it did on the first occasion when influenced by the speaker's voice. We can now imagine one metal disc in London vibrating in sympathy with a similar disc in, say, Glasgow, provided we can pass on the vibrations from the one disc to the other. Of course, a direct connection of a stretched wire of vibrating molecules is quite out of the question, as already explained, but a very simple way out of the difficulty is found with the aid of an electric current. The speaker talks against a little disc of iron, which we may imagine as being a somewhat elastic lid to a metal box filled with powdered carbon. The current on its way from a battery to the line wire has to pass through the carbon. It is as though a short piece of the wire had been cut out, and this box of carbon inserted in the space. The powdered carbon offers a great resistance to the passage of the current, but if the carbon is compressed, even very slightly, it permits more current to pass, and the speaker, by speaking, sets up air vibrations and causes such pressure on the disc and the enclosed carbon. The variations of this pressure cause an ever-varying current to pass out from the battery through the carbon and along the line wire. One may imagine it as an undulatory current having a great variety of waves, and when this reaches the distant end of the wire, it is led through the small coil of an electromagnet in front of which is placed a metal disc, similar to that in the transmitter at the sending end. The metal disc will be attracted by the electromagnet in degree, according to the current passing. 
in this way the disc in the receiver is set into motions exactly similar to those of the disc at the speaker's end when the listener places the little disc close to his ear the disc in turn sets the air into exactly similar vibrations to those which the speaker is producing in front of the sending disc and therefore the speech is heard just as though the speaker's voice was directly operating on the listener's tympanum or eardrum we have therefore in the telephone the speaker's voice controlling the battery current which on reaching the distant receiver produces a varying magnetic field thus influencing a little iron disc and thus setting it into exactly similar motion to the controlling disc this is only a very general description there are other details which we need only mention in passing when the telephone is supplied with electricity from a small primary battery the current passes through a small induction coil and is intensified in pressure then there is the little electromagnetic machine a small dynamo which is driven by a handle and sends out a powerful current to operate the receiver's bell as this bell is only for calling attention it is automatically switched out of the current while speaking when that part of the instrument carrying the transmitter and receiver is lying at rest on its stand the end of the line wire is in contact with the bell circuit but as soon as the speaking part is lifted the holder rises by a spring and in so doing it switches the line wire to the telephone proper in the first form of telephone in which this powdered carbon was used the little metal box or case containing it was fixed to the wall instrument and as the powder would keep gravitating to the bottom of the enclosing case the speaker was requested to shake or turn the case occasionally such instructions are very apt to be overlooked but by fixing the transmitter in one piece with the receiver which was formerly the only part one hung up and took down to operate the switch the speaker is made to shake up the carbon in the transmitter each time he uses the instrument without receiving any instructions to do so by improvements recently made in the transmitter it is now unnecessary to move or turn it in any way to maintain its efficiency it is of interest to note that this transmitter with the granular carbon which is now in full command of the field was invented by an english clergyman named hunnings two other very useful inventions made by clergymen are the power loom and the hosiery machine at the time of writing the first edition of the present volume each telephone in use in this country had its own primary battery beside it but in america it had been suggested many years previously to supply all the current from a central battery at the exchange and dispense with the individual batteries at the subscribers instruments in this connection the following remark was made in the first edition it seems probable that all telephones will some day be worked from a central battery at the exchange although the system has not found much favor as yet since that time many exchanges have been arranged on the central battery system with complete success through the courtesy of the national telephone company in glasgow i have had an opportunity of seeing the working of one of the most modern exchanges on the central battery system before describing this exchange a few preliminary remarks may be helpful originally the telephone was used merely for speaking between two particular places just as an ordinary speaking tube is used it may be mentioned in passing that the general public looked upon the telephone as a scientific toy at first however it soon became apparent that if all telephone lines passed through one public office it would be possible to connect any two of the distant instruments together 
prior to this time the post office had given intercommunication between private telegraph lines using the old a b c dials no doubt it was this fact that suggested the telephone exchange the first exchanges were very small so that connecting arrangements were very simple the telephone users became known as subscribers as they had to pay a subscription or rent to the company who supplied the telephone instruments and undertook to make all the necessary connections so that they could converse with all the other subscribers when one wishes to be able to connect a portable electric lamp to several places in a house one gets the electrician to bring the ends of the wires carrying the current to a convenient position on the wall the wires are then attached to two little sockets and the portable lamp is provided with two small fingers or plugs which fit into these sockets and can be withdrawn at will the same idea is made use of in connecting one pair of telephone wires to another pair in the early days only one wire was used for telephony its two ends dipping into the earth at the extremities just as telegraph lines of the present day are arranged all the subscribers' wires were finished off with a little socket, or jack. These jacks were arranged close together in a table. When the exchange operator was asked to connect one subscriber to another, she used a short length of flexible wire having a plug on each end. Placing one plug in the jack belonging to the first subscriber and the second plug in that of the other subscriber, she united their wires and enabled them to carry on conversation in the early days when there were only a few hundred subscribers a telephone exchange was comparatively simple a modern exchange may have to deal with as many as ten or twelve thousand subscribers and in order to provide means of connecting together any two of that great congregation of wires a great deal of ingenious planning has been necessary it will be of interest therefore to see the workings of a modern exchange I may remark in passing that it will be apparent to all that a subscriber cannot call to an operator, please connect me to Mr. John Smith. The subscriber must look up the telephone directory and state merely the number by which Mr. John Smith is known. We are just so many numbers to the telephone operator. Until within recent years, one was able to recognize a telephone exchange by the great congregation of wires over the top of the building. Today there is no such conspicuous sign, and one might pass a modern exchange without suspecting that it was such. This change is not accounted for by the advent of wireless telephony, which, by the way, will occupy a special field of its own, and as far as one can see at present, it will not come into competition with ordinary telephony. The reason of the change referred to is much simpler. It is merely that the congregation of wires has been carried along under the ground instead of overhead there are many advantages in this change. Each cable may contain as many as 1,200 wires. These are all carefully insulated from one another and protected on the outside by a heavy lead tube. It is common practice to have 600 or even 800 pairs of wires in one cable. Each subscriber requires a pair of wires to give a complete circuit for his telephone, as the original plan of an earth circuit has been dispensed with, as already mentioned. I have been amused in noting the different ideas that friends have formed of the interior of a telephone exchange. Some have even pictured a large hall with a multitude of telephone instruments, each instrument representing the exchange end of a subscriber's wire. However, most of the public have clearer ideas today. 
photographs of the interiors of some exchanges have been published in the public journals we are all familiar with the subscribers instruments in their homes and offices we may picture the wires from six hundred different subscribers instruments all coming together and passing into one cable which is buried under the streets the other end of the cable comes up under the telephone exchange here we find several similar cables coming up through the floor of the apparatus room the amateur electrician finds it quite a task to separate the ends of a small cable containing half a dozen wires and find the two ends of the same wire imagine what it must be to separate a cable of twelve hundred wires the first thing the telephone engineer has to do is to separate these wires and fix the end of each wire to a suitable connection upon one side of the main distributing frame he takes the wires just as they come without considering the number of the subscriber after getting these securely fixed he attaches to each certain safety devices there is some risk of a telephone wire getting in contact with an electric light wire and conducting a heavy current into the exchange two of the safety devices are to protect the apparatus in the exchange against the entrance of any such current these protectors consist of a fuse and a heat coil they give way under the heat produced by a heavy current and as soon as they break they cut the circuit or send the intruding current to earth the third safety device is to protect the exchange apparatus against lightning should it happen to strike a telephone wire this lightning arrestor consists essentially of a small air gap across which the lightning charge can jump to an earth wire whereas the ordinary telephone current cannot cross this air gap and has to keep to its continuous path the lightning on the other hand finds it easier to take this short cut to earth rather than go through the apparatus in the exchange the difference of behavior between the battery current and the lightning discharge is due to the fact that the former is impelled by a low electrical pressure while the electrical pressure of the latter is millions of times greater after getting each wire securely fixed with these safety devices the wires are continued over to the other side of the distributing frame each wire being taken from this point to a second frame in numerical rotation number one subscriber's wire is now in the first position on this frame and so on with the others these are extended to a third frame carrying apparatus the use of which we shall understand better when we have seen what is taking place in the switch room where all the connecting and disconnecting of the subscriber's lines is carried on when we enter this room we see an upright board extending right round the room this is the board which holds all the little sockets or jacks representing the ends of the subscriber's wires we find the operators sitting in a row around the room facing this upright board as may be seen in the photograph each of these young ladies has a very light telephone receiver held against her ear by a suitable fastening around her head the transmitter of her telephone which is supported by a light frame hung upon her shoulders has a long funnel coming close up to her mouth standing in the switch room one scarcely hears that any conversation is taking place at all first of all we had better get a general idea of the operator's duties they are to attend to all the calls made by the subscribers and make the necessary connections between subscribers disconnecting them when requested an operator must be able to connect the subscriber calling with any number requested this means that each operator must be able to reach from number one socket or jack to number ten thousand 
it is necessary on this account to bring all the jacks into as small a space as possible consistent with efficient construction the space required makes a board opposite which three operators may sit with comfort and yet so arranged that each may reach to any one of the ten thousand jacks on the board while each of these operators could connect any two of the jacks with a flexible cord it must be clear to all that these three operators are not going to attend to the calls of the whole ten thousand subscribers one hundred subscribers will keep an operator fairly busy but she can connect any of these with every other subscriber asked for to answer the calls of the whole ten thousand subscribers will require about one hundred operators each attending to about one hundred subscribers there is nothing for it but to fit up duplicate boards each containing the whole subscribers jacks and let every three operators have a complete board we may picture the pair of wires of number one subscriber coming up from the apparatus room and entering the switchboard at the first section they are fastened to number one jack then passing on to the next section they are fastened to another similar jack also marked number one so on the wires go through the whole long board around the room being tapped at each section and connected to a socket or jack fixed there the whole arrangement is called the multiple board because of this multiplication of jacks for each subscriber's line we are ready to see how the subscriber is to communicate with the operator several different plans have been tried i can remember in the early days we used to go forward to our telephone instruments and ring up the operator that is to say we turned the handle of the little magneto-electric machine just as we did when ringing a subscriber after being connected some subscribers fondly imagined that they were actually ringing a bell in the exchange and if they did not get immediate attention they would continue to ring like a house on fire i used to ask these friends what sort of pandemonium they thought a telephone exchange must be like imagine hundreds if not thousands of bells all ringing at one time in one room these impatient subscribers were quite disappointed to learn that all their high-pressure energy merely caused a very small lever to drop the shutter of a little indicator and expose the number of the subscriber making the call. After this almost noiseless operation was performed, the remainder of the current which was intended to waken up the operator merely caused the tiny lever to move a small fraction of an inch another plan adopted to give subscribers a prompt means of communicating with the operator was to have the operator always listening on a public call wire this wire passed through a certain section of the town and branch lines were dropped from it into the subscribers offices or homes as many as sixty subscribers would be connected to one call line the telephone instruments were not connected directly to this wire but as long as the subscriber depressed a button on his instrument he switched his telephone on to this public call wire the advantage was that he could get in touch with the operator at any given moment the disadvantage was that a number of subscribers might all attempt to give calls at the same time and unfortunately many of them seemed to think that whoever would cry the loudest would get the best attention the result was that the poor operator was often at her wit's end to make head or tail of the jumble of noises this call wire system is most convenient in districts where the subscribers are not too numerous and where there is no great rush of business another plan was to give each operator an answering jack for each subscriber to whom she had to attend 
these were sockets or jacks similar to those in the multiple board but additional to them these answering jacks were grouped together below the others right in front of the operator beneath each answering jack there was a tiny electric glow lamp in diameter about the size of a large pea at the other end of the line the subscriber had a button on his instrument which if depressed caused the little lamp in the exchange to light up in this way the operator knew when any of her one hundred subscribers wanted to speak to her the latest plan is really an improvement on the last mentioned the operator still has the answering jacks and the little signal lamps but things have been made very easy for the subscriber he has not to trouble about any signaling he merely lifts his telephone off the hook and this action causes the signal lamp to glow with the latest methods the operator is able to answer within five seconds so the subscriber will doubtless think she has been waiting his call just as the operator on the call wire used to do indeed one gentleman using this new system has told me that the operator answers so quickly sometimes that he suddenly forgets what he was about to say it is worth while inquiring what really happens when the subscriber lifts his telephone off its support the support being freed of the weight of the telephone springs up and completes the subscriber's circuit with the exchange this causes a current from the large battery at the exchange to operate a signaling instrument attached to the subscriber's line on the third frame mentioned in the apparatus room this little signaling instrument called a relay consists of an electromagnet which attracts an armature to it and thus switches on the necessary current to light up the small lamp beside his answering jack on the operator's board as long as the subscriber keeps his telephone off the hook the little relay in the apparatus room will keep the current switched on to the lamp when the operator inserts the plug which is attached to one end of her connecting wire into the answering jack this lamp goes out the insertion of the plug in answering the call puts current onto a second relay arranged beside the first one in the apparatus room this switches the current off the first relay causing the lamp to go out as mentioned and the insertion of the plug at the same time brings on the necessary lighting current for the signaling lamp representing the connecting wire there are two lamps one representing each side of the connecting wire the two ends of this connecting wire come up through the operator's table and the plug stand upright in front of her the flexible wire hangs down beneath the table until the plugs are lifted when it comes through the table a weight suspended beneath the table keeps the flexible wire always taut and pulls it back through the table when the operator frees the plugs from the jacks so far the operator has used only one leg of the connecting wire she has inserted this in the answering jack whose light glowed by moving a small lever into what is called the listening position she switches her own telephone on to the calling subscriber and learns from him the number of the subscriber to whom he wishes to speak the operator now lifts the second plug on the connecting wire and puts it into the jack of the number wanted she then moves the little lever from the listening position to the ringing position and this causes an electric current from the apparatus room to reach the subscriber's telephone and his bell rings the ringing current is supplied by a generator driven by a motor the operator holds the key over to the ringing position for a second or so then releases it until the subscriber wanted answers the ring thus given the lamp on that side of the connecting wire glows but immediately he takes the telephone off the hook the lamp goes out 
this gives the operator intimation that the subscriber wanted has answered the call the operator knows that both subscribers have their telephones off the hooks and she leaves them connected if one lamp glows while the other remains out she still leaves them connected for very probably one subscriber has merely put down his telephone while he goes to make some inquiry when both lamps glow this is accepted as the signal to disconnect the operator is entitled to presume that they have finished as they have both laid down their telephones she therefore withdraws the connecting plugs it will be observed that the subscriber has not to call off this is always a trouble in other systems for a subscriber omitting to call off is supposed to be engaged the only possible chance of a subscriber being left engaged after he has finished is if he goes away and leaves his telephone off the hook even this contingency is provided for it would seem hopeless to get him as the operator cannot ring his bell so long as his telephone is off the hook she reports the matter to a test clerk who switches on the howler this produces a howling sound not unlike a siren in the subscriber's telephone this calls the attention of the subscriber to his carelessness in leaving his telephone off the hook it is obvious that two subscribers at different boards may call for the same number at the one time what is to prevent an operator connecting a third party to a line already in use she can tell by touching the subscriber's jack with the connecting plug before she inserts it if she hears a clicking sound in her own telephone she knows that the line is already connected elsewhere so she intimates engaged sorry to the subscriber asking for the number other operators at a separate table deal with connections to other exchanges but we need not trouble with more detail as the general principle is the same as that just described there is of course this difference that the two subscribers jacks which are to be connected lie in different exchanges this necessitates the use of a junction line one end of which is in the one exchange and the second in the distant exchange these calls are described as junction calls one interesting feature in connection with these calls is that when the operator puts down the key to ring the subscriber wanted it is automatically held down it is so arranged that the ringing current from the generator is cut off and put on at the end of every few seconds after the manner of some alarm clocks until the subscriber wanted lifts his telephone off the hook immediately he does this the current which holds the key down is automatically switched off and this in turn cuts off the ringing current in this way the operator's time is not wasted waiting the reply of a dilatory subscriber while the bell of his telephone continues to ring until he answers then there are trunk calls which signify connections requiring to be made between two subscribers who are in different towns a subscriber in london may converse with a friend in scotland or france and so on there is one point which is sure to be of interest to telephone users instead of renting the telephone for a certain annual subscription it is becoming common to charge so much per thousand calls how in the world is an operator going to keep count of all the calls each of her one hundred subscribers makes in a day she has kept busy enough connecting and disconnecting subscribers without attempting any system of bookkeeping again the obliging automation comes to her assistance down in the apparatus room each subscriber's wire is provided with a tiny meter or register anyone who is familiar with the small cyclometers put upon cycle wheels for counting the mileage will understand the general principle 
a train of wheels turns the figures on an indicator but the meter must not work every time the subscriber lifts his telephone off the hook to call the exchange the number he wants may be engaged and he will not be willing to pay if he has not obtained the connection he asked for it is the operator therefore who actuates the meter when a subscriber has got his message through the operator depresses a small key or button in circuit with the connecting wire she is using this sends a current to the meter of the calling subscriber and registers one call against him the telephone subscriber therefore pays for his calls on the same principle as he pays for his gas or electricity each operator also has a meter which registers the total number of calls she attends to each day this however is merely for the use of the telephone manager it will be remembered that there are no batteries at the subscriber's telephone the whole of the necessary current is supplied from the exchange about one dozen large accumulators serve for everything these are charged by means of suitable dynamos one advantage is that no matter how long a conversation may be continued the current remains constant the primary battery on the other hand used to give trouble as its current fell off very quickly if kept too long on the line without a rest there is no doubt that the central battery system has come to stay at least until some other newer method makes its appearance in the united states of america there are several telephone exchanges which are worked without human operators the connections and disconnections being made automatically one of these exchanges has eight thousand subscribers the method of calling a number will be understood by referring to the left-hand illustration facing page one fifty two the legend below the photograph will explain the action the electric impulses sent out by the subscriber in calling the number desired operates a selector the construction of which is shown in the right-hand photograph on the same page when the subscriber signals the number of hundreds in the directory number of the subscriber he wishes the center rod in the selector moves up three sections if the number signaled is in the three hundreds this upright rod carries with it a little arm or finger which is to make connection with the other subscriber's line at present we have imagined it to be raised to the section containing all the numbers beginning with three hundred the next set of impulses from the calling subscriber moves the little contact finger to the flat or row containing the number wanted if it is among the fifties then five impulses are received and that raises the finger to the fifth row the next set of impulses representing the units cause the rod to turn round and bring the finger along the row to the first second or whatever number is required among the fifties thus if the subscriber signals the numbers three five and seven successively the connecting finger will raise to the three hundred the fifth row and the seventh line in that row his telephone will be connected to number three fifty seven when the subscriber who originated the call puts his telephone back on the hook the automaton disconnects the line by allowing the upright rod in the selector to return to its former position of zero the disadvantage in a purely automatic exchange is that the company lose all control of the system to take an illustration we may suppose that subscriber a is a rather eccentric individual and because he has a grievance against subscriber b a connects his telephone to that of b but does not ring him so long as a leaves this connection of which b is not aware and which he could not disconnect so long will no one else be able to call b in other words one subscriber can purposely hold up the line of another subscriber 
to the disadvantage of the latter there is now a telephone which might by the uninitiated be supposed to possess brains for if its owner is absent when a friend rings him up it will accept the message on its own account and repeat it to its master on his return and no matter how long he is in returning or how many friends have confided messages to it it never suffers from loss of memory but gives a correct recital of all the information or secrets that have been entrusted to it this instrument is called a telegraphone and its general principle may be briefly stated if one pictures for a moment the telephone transmitter sending out a varying current to the distant magnet as described in the earlier part of this chapter and if one recalls how the magnet acted upon the disc or diaphragm then we have only to replace the stationary disc by an iron wire passing in front of and slightly touching the magnet the wire being thus magnetized by the influence of the electromagnet which is varying under control of the speaker's voice the wire therefore receives as it were a great number of spots of different degrees of magnetization which it is capable of retaining the wire being made of mild steel the wire is now analogous to a phonograph cylinder with a record upon it this reproduction of the sound is very easily understood if one imagines the little magnet of a telephone receiver instead of being magnetized by the incoming current from a distance being now merely put in contact with this magnetized wire which when drawn across the electromagnet impacts similar degrees of magnetism to it the magnet thus influenced will in turn operate an ordinary telephone diaphragm and thus set up similar air vibrations to those originally imparted to the telephone that used the wire as a record as the telegraph phone is now a reliable piece of apparatus there may be quite a large commercial field for it how much more reliable to have a clear-headed instrument accept a message and re-deliver it instead of having to cross-examine a careless servant as to whether mr so-and-so said this or that End of chapter fourteen